first of all, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel uh, Newby, who, have I pronounced that right? Uh, uh, you're on mute, by the way, uh, who is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford, and also Professor Martin Knapp, who is a Professor of Health and Social Care Policy at the London School of Economics. And I have to confess for this being a slightly odd pairing, if you like. <laughs> I just, dream. I, I tried to group the dream, people please. according the to dream. their work, and there, then I came across people who were quite unique. Um, so I, I tried to come up with some tenuous links and my, the tenuous link I had in my head between both your work, which is you're trying to find, um, I don't want to say what you do, but so, uh, trying to, the title as it gave away was finding new treatments in old drugs, which has got to be cheaper, right? Than developing new ones. And Martin knows all about the value of things and the cost of things. And that was the tenuous link. I made yeah, that's no, a good link. It's a good link. No, I agree. Like, like you said, like, I'm not sure if that'll play out as we get talking. Uh, Martin, could I ask you to introduce yourself? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Martin Knapp. I work at LSE, as you said. Um, so I'm an, I was once, I guess, an economist. I'm still an economist. Um, I think in company of today's chatathon, I'm probably the most economics-y person, probably the oldest, probably the greyest and so on. Um, and I do work in across many different things in the dementia space, um, not just on economics, but particularly policy focused, I would say. Um, and then I think probably the overlap a little bit with Danielle will be, obviously we've done some work on, different treatments and uh, support services, people dementia, and we look at the economic aspects of them uh, in the UK and elsewhere. I'll stop there. Thank you. And Danielle? Okay, so I'm an early career researcher um, from the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford. Um, I've only been in like the dementia field for about four years, so I kind of class myself as like a data scientist. So I've got a kind of a very varied background. So I've like a bit of machine learning, I used to work in pharma, the pharmaceutical industry many years ago, and then I kind of got more into, involved into the computational side of it and the data analysis side of it. Um, yeah. So brilliant. Well, actually, that leads us on quite nicely because the title of this about finding new treatments in old drugs, um, I saw a talk for the Alzheimer's Association International Conference a couple of weeks ago with trying to so explain for, for people who who are watching this who aren't technical what 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 do we mean by repurposing drugs yeah yeah sure so basically there are drugs that are on the market already so for example drugs that are used to treat high blood pressure diabetes all that sort of stuff and they're already on the market but they've all they've been uh the, they've been used to treat those diseases so what people are now doing is thinking okay can those drugs be used to treat other diseases so we call it repurposing because we're basically taking a drug that's already on the market, being used to treat one disease to see if it will treat another. Um, and there's loads, loads of examples of that um, that are already happening. And the kind of the most common one that I kind of use is Viagra, because basically originally it was supposed to be a cardiovascular medication and it had some interesting side effects and then it became for erectile dysfunction so it's basically this is now a new kind of era of like pharmaceutical industry is that they're trying to find these kind of um how i put it, old you know finding new uses in old drugs and you can see i mean that's first of all cheaper right i mean although saying that though is it i mean i guess it's still cheaper because there's an awful lot of work but i imagine still even in repurposing to take a drug that that 
particularly if you haven't already kind of got a list of everything it affects. I, I saw, is there other ways, how do you work this out? I mean, it's not just all coincidence that somebody who's over 65 on a blood pressure medication suddenly came in and said, oh, my memory's getting better. And then that finds its way through and people realize there's a, there's a, as you said, you're a data scientist. How does data allow you to target that? Yeah, yeah. So we can use data. We use existing data. We only use, like, I only use data that's already available. I don't generate new data. So again, that's a cost-effective way because we basically use data like um, GP records. So when you go to a GP, it'll ask you, like, what um, symptoms and then um, it'll diagnose you and that will get recorded in any sort of medications. And what we can use that information to see if there's any relationships between certain drugs and certain outcomes. So things like if you take a blood pressure, medi uh, blood pressure lowering medication, does that, for example, reduce your risk of dementia? So we can look in the data, see the people that are taking those sort of medications and see if they have a lower risk of dementia. And that's a very simplistic kind of like um, way of looking at it, but that's kind of what we can use the data that's already out there to kind of provide evidence that can then potentially be taken forward to like clinical trials. And I understand, I mean, I guess there, there is some fundamental underlying biochemistry underneath that in so much as they'll know certain medications are treating, uh, you know, working on certain cells or parts of the brain. So that they'll look to those first, perhaps. Yeah, so basically, because again, like, I'm, I'm interested in dementia prevention. So I'm interested in basically seeing if I can stop dementia occurring in the first place or slowing down its onset. So what we can do is um, look at these kind of risk factors. So you always hear risk factors, they're all in the newspapers. And we look at like things that are modifiable, so things that can be changed. So things like blood pressure, um, things like uh, you can uh, your exercise and things like that. So we can kind of get an idea of these risk factors and then kind of use that information to then see if we can use drugs or med drug medications to see if they can kind of um, modify those risk factors. And therefore the idea is then prevent um, dementia. I had a, an image then of a, a mental image of there being some kind of like super drug where you combine, you combined all those things, you know, like you, you, you get the, the things to reduce cholesterol and the drugs to reduce that you combine all those in one. And there you go. There's your risk reducing Alzheimer's treatment in a single daily tablet yeah yeah so there are no. there are there are well no 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 what i'm saying is that they're for example cardiovascular they do have that and it's called a polypill so they basically take like combinations of drugs and then use it to like treat the disease and there is like this consensus not necessarily just for, for prevention but actually for treating alzheimer's um symptoms where they use combinations of drugs so what you're thinking is actually right is that it's not just one it's not going to be a one drug hit wonder it's going to be a combination of hitting those kind of like risk modifiable risk factors so yeah um sorry coming to you martin and i mean we we often see i know it's an often quoted statistic looking at alzheimer's society and they are uk's website about oh if we could just delay the onset by one year it would generate this much of a saving to the economy and things like that is how does your work how do you look at these things in your work i mean i think this i was going to follow up exactly uh, directly on what danielle was saying because uh i've been watching the 
some of the chatathon. I'm not sure. Have you spoken to Nahid Mukadam yet, or is she coming on a bit later on? Later today. Yeah. Okay, okay. I'm going to steal her thunder very, very slightly. So, so with Nahid and, and Jill Livingston and other colleagues of mine at LSE, we've just finished a paper. It's coming out soon in Lancet Healthy Longevity, which is looking at midlife risk factors for dementia and looking at interventions such as for high blood pressure or for diabetes uh, in midlife and looking at the economic arguments for intervening in midlife to then reduce the risk of dementia in late life. Um, and so some of that cost saving, if you like, will come about because it will delay the onset or it may in some cases completely remove the dementia happening. Uh, and that can be quite a substantial saving. So I think even though doing things in midlife might not have a benefit for 25, 30, 40 years in some cases, the economic impact can still be quite large and really does show that doing things in midlife is economically sensible, as well as, of course, health uh, sensible in terms of health and quality of life. So I think the, you know, we, we can't, you know, you've had lots of clever people previously on the chat on talking about you know, risk factors and uh, what we know about testing early for risks and so on. We're a long way from having a very precise science in that. But I think anything we can do to just delay that onset would make quite a big difference in terms of the, the demands on health services, social care services, especially the demands on family and other carers. So it does make a lot of sense to do it. Yes. It's not, it's not all pounds, shillings and pence. It can be, a lot of it is, in, I would say the carer element is particularly important. Um, so you know, it's not always cashable savings, but it is an important impact. And I mean, it's, it's a bit of an old thing. I'm thinking about back to old Yes Minister episodes and things like that. Is I mean, I was always, at the start, I made an argument for saying you could see how every study that has needs to have somebody at some point that understands the economic impact of these things. So when you publish, that you could, if you were to share the costs of doing this alongside with your published results, it might make it more implementable or make people sit up because quite often the publications come out, they just say, oh, we should make this change and then they just disappear because they don't come. I, I think he's, it's Jill Livingston's work particularly I thought was impressed when I saw her give a presentation at an Alzheimer's Society thing recently where the last slide was, right, and this is what it costs. And that's the first time I'd seen that happen anywhere I mean, would you advocate for more research coming with or does does that get worked out later on by somebody you know is there somebody in government somewhere that sits and goes are we going to fund this what's the real value well firstly somebody in government will do that i think now i would say that um the 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 big funders of research and i would say the responsible funders of research will almost certainly insist that there's an economics component to any evaluation any any clinical trial why why on earth would you do a clinical trial and not look at the economics aspects of it? I don't understand why you would want to do that, to be honest. And funders recognize that. Um, and it's such an easy, it's, it's, a, it's a very low cost element to add into a study. When you've got a study going on already, adding in the economics question doesn't divert it or complicate it really at all. It doesn't cost very much to do. So, so I've done lots of work jointly with Jill, for example, where we add the economics component into trials that she has designed and managed and led. Um, and that will happen across all the different areas now. So NIHR, uh, Alzheimer's Society, uh, research councils, they would always want to have the economics component in there as well. So it's even if the decision maker says it's not important, we're, we're going to ignore the cost side, it's better to give them the information in the first place and then they can decide whether they might want to override it and go with something else as more important. 
it's interesting because you'd imagine where pharma companies where you'd imagine the bottom line is is key on that are also then the first to i guess not worry too much about what the costs at the other end will be because if they the you know if biogen for example is the first one to do to come up with a treatment that costs tens of thousands of pounds will will people pay for it do you think they worry though um, I well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think, well, there's two or three issues there. And I think um, one would be uh, in, in normal circumstances, you know, we have a we have a constrained budget. And the reason why we have this body called NICE is to help us to uh, prioritize where we're going to spend our money. And I always say about the NICE, propo uh, NICE process is that they do an enormous amount of work reviewing evidence, doing new modeling, having lots of engagement with patients and citizens and so on. And then they produce their report and they make a recommendation. But that's not the final stage. The final stage is what happens the next day, which is when they get slagged off on the front pages of the newspapers, where the newspapers will say, NICE condemns women with breast cancer to early death or something like that, because they, because NICE have said it's just not worth it, given the constrained budget we have. So it gets into quite difficult territory. Um, my position has always been, I would much rather, well, you know, I'm biased, of course, but I'd much rather the information was there. And then people say, actually, this does look expensive, but we think it's definitely worth doing in terms of a keeping people alive or improving their health or their well-being and, and relating to Danielle's work you know if there's repurposing of medications it maybe that's an expensive way to do something but if it does mean that somebody has an extra one or two years of life without very severe dementia we as a society might say that's really worth doing let's let's go with it so. yeah absolutely I mean you can see the, the biggest thing that that's is probably not so much in drugs right now but it's probably going to be in social care isn't it where the costs of the costs of redesigning social care versus the value is a controversial issue. Is that, is that something you've, I mean, obviously a lot of the stuff you've published in the past is, is to look to that. But how is your research being used at the moment? Um, well, we do, I mean, certainly we do a lot. We do a lot of work on, I mean, you mentioned earlier about the sort of project, the future costs and so on. We're trying, we have done some projections of numbers of people with dementia into the future. Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society now use our projections for their publicity. Um, that's a little plug for our work. Um, but we didn't, but sorry, apologies, not too blatant. No, um, but, <laughs> but I think, but also, but what, we, what we're going to try and do is say, okay, so what are the costs? If, if we don't change anything in our care and support system, what will those future costs look like? And they look scary. So then we say, what could we do which is better today than we're doing at the moment? So if we think that the new drugs are better uh, or that the existing drugs are better and should be made more widely available or that you know, reducing blood pressure is a good idea in midlife and that will have payoffs, we're then trying to say, if we're going to do that, let's do it for the whole of the eligible population and then see what the costs would be, the cost savings would be, and the well-being gains will be, uh, and then feed that into government decision making government uh, discussions and you know i think we, we we do have influence i mean at the end of the day i can point to beautiful research we've done in the past which has been completely ignored and i can point to uh, let me use the right adjective crappy research we've done in the past that's had a big impact um so you can't control you know how people use it so some of your work is commissioned i guess some other researchers yeah. come to you and say we yeah. want to do this and others is is self-driven 
but I mean, take the best Daniel's work. If Daniel does, you know, well, this, you know, using the big data and so on, which you need, I'm sure, to understand what might be relatively small effects. If those come out from from your analyses, Danielle, um, and it looks like there's some promising um, findings there, then somebody somewhere in the system is going to say, okay, so what's going to be the cost of that, and what might that do in the longer term in terms of changing the profile of numbers of people with dementia or different types of dementia, and how might then then impact on the care system or on carers. So, so I think you know that the economic stuff can follow on from other people's work, um, but I think you know it's often just helping decision makers to see the full picture before they you know, before they make a judgment, if you like. So, Daniel, I'm going to come back to you now. So, are there? So, are you now working on a short? You know, have you used the data and you've got a short list? Um, and well, I, and also as well, are you limited by? in terms of data is all the data available to you on what different treatments are and their compounds and things like that well it depends on what sort of data there is available there are some data that's freely available and there's some data that isn't you have to pay a small fee or you have to pay a larger fee um so the data isn't just available for like anybody to use um and it also depends on like what sort of data as well because we have different types of data um, so things like you've got your GP records, so when you go to see your doctor, and then there's also hospital records. Um, so yeah, um, we kind of, we do have, we kind of, because we've, like I said before, we've looked at kind of like we, we're understanding kind of the risk factors. Um, we also want to kind of like also what like Martin and Jill have been looking at is kind of like the life course, like midlife to all the way through to um, when you get older. And like how the impact of like these other diseases feed into it, what other medications people are taking as well. And also building all of these kind of like um, models to see what the relationship between a potential drug that could reduce um, dementia and one that doesn't. Um, so we do have kind of like things like, it's all of these risk factors like um, diabetes, like um, hypertension, um like you or, and lots of other things like inflammation like i've like we look at like they think that like inflammation of the brain could be a potential um, risk for um dementia so potentially anti-inflammatories but what sort of anti-inflammatories because there are the ones that you can get over the counter like you're kind of you like um ibuprofen and that sort of things but there are other sort of um inflammatory diseases as well so it's now looking at the different types of inflammation and that, then seeing yeah that kind of well um, affects that's, risk. A question, that's a question um which I'll, is quite timely actually so i'll put this to you now terry blatter asks that uh if a pre-existing medication is recycled for a new treatment how uh would this uh not impact on the original condition for which they were originally administered so i guess this is a few double negatives in there, right? Could be the way I read it, but I get the point, which is, it's that trade-off, isn't it? Every drug has a side effect, so you give something to somebody. How is it not balancing against what it might cause somewhere else? Yeah, definitely. And so that's kind of, at the moment, what we'll look at the the data that we'll look at is the person that's taking that drug at that dosage for that condition. And all we're kind of doing at the moment is providing that evidence to go, OK, at that level of drug, um, that dose that you're taking for that condition, there seems to be a reduction in risk. Then that's when it has to go back and be um, looked at, for, the, for like, for example, in academ academia or the pharmaceutical industry to try, try and find that kind of um, the correct dosage, which then won't affect um, other 
um, other side effects or the condition that they've already got. Because the idea is like, you know, um, if they have, if they don't have the condition that you're looking to treat the new condition, but then you're right, what happens if they have the condition? Would they have to take, um, what sort of dosage would they have to take, then take to get the benefit of treating the old condition and treating the new condition? Yes. And that's something that you have to kind of go back and find and find that kind of um, the correct one. Um, and that, I don't know if that's something I can do. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but it also sounds like something that must take quite a long time because, I mean, some of these, some of the effects of these drugs, they, they don't have an instant effect, right? I mean, you know, these have long-term effects. So you have to give these treatments to somebody in their midlife, but you won't know until they're older unless there's some data modeling to work out from the first few years of data, the long-term effects, but. Yeah, it, it really depends on the, again, it depends on the data source and how long they've actually, so electronic health records or health records, health records have been around for years and years and years. And it's only recently, I say recently, like in like the noughties or whatever, um, is that they've um, become electronic. And then they've, we've got to think about how, you know, what is that good amount of data that we can then follow somebody up from, from the time that they started the GP and then how long have they been in that GP practice? And it really, again, it depends on how long. So some people can be in there for a couple of years. Some people can be in there 10 years. And also with the, I say the problem with the UK is that somebody can leave a GP surgery and go and register in another one. Whereas in certain other countries, once you're registered, you get followed round. So it doesn't matter where you live, they follow you round. So that makes it easier to kind of like follow somebody um, throughout their life. Is, is, is there also an issue with the data set that you collect? Because, of course, somebody can be on a medication and then whilst they should get, I guess, regular follow-ups uh, however many months or years afterwards to make sure they should still be on that dosage or that medication, that if they're not, for example, taking the measure that you'd really like, like not everybody's going to get a cognition test every year, but actually if somebody was on that medication since they were 50s, you would have quite liked them to have had a cognition test so you could have looked at that is that so when you that's always a problem that's always a problem is that this is the thing with like ideally like when we do observate like we call it observational research because we're looking at data that's already there so we're looking at it what we kind of want to do is kind of like rep, not replicate but mimic a kind of a clinical trial um and the problem is this what observational data is like people leave people don't take the drugs that they're supposed to that that's one of the problems is like a lot of people don't even though they get a prescription they don't actually take the drug and these are the things that when we've written up our um results to then be published is that we have these limitations and like we have to kind of be very specific and say you know um it, we call it adherence so is a person actually taking a drug well we don't know because when you for example when you buy a prescription you don't know if the person's actually is actually going to take that drug yeah um, and there's loads of all these things and the one thing i would say about the stuff that i do the main thing i have to do is think i have to think about the data and can i ask the question from the data that i've got and if i can't then i have to kind of go back to the drawing board it's really you have to be so careful because you don't want to kind of publish something and it not actually be right because the data that you've used isn't the right data and I guess that's where things like, I mean, the UK is really fortunate to have organisations like the, the Biobank, for example, and Dementia's Platform UK that are collecting up these massive 
cohort data sets from and combining them and looking at clever ways to search and use those. And then I saw a presentation a couple of weeks ago as well, how they were starting to use artificial intelligence to fill in the gaps or run virtual drug trials. So you didn't even really, because the computer model worked out that you'd have so many dropouts and you'd get this and this is the symptoms and you could almost run a virtual drug trial without it really and Martin, is, is, is AI and data science a big part of your work? Maybe not AI. Is it coming in? Yeah, yeah, it's coming in. I mean, uh, I think one of the, I mean, you mentioned social care earlier, and I think um, the challenge will be, particularly in relation to dementia, would be to then get access to data, which is not just about healthcare, um, health and healthcare, but social care, social care needs, uh, links into carers again. Um, and I think we are, you know, we're, we're quite well positioned in the UK in terms of data. We don't necessarily get our data sets to talk to each other um, as well as we would like. So they need to link up a bit better. Uh, but I've got colleagues at LSE, particularly Jose Luis Fernandez, doing lots of work um, on data science. He's got lots of very clever young researchers working with him on, on data uh, stuff, AI related stuff. I don't understand it, but it, I'm pleased they're doing it. So. No, I mean, either. And, and I guess, although then, of course, the inevitable follow-up question that comes from that is concerns about use of data, doesn't it? I mean, it's that, what, how will combining those various data sets are really fascinating, the results. Is the common one that comes up? I know I, so I work with, uh, for Professor Martin Rosser, who I know you work with, Martin, and he often talks about things like shopping habits from from uh, loyalty card schemes and things like that and your work and if you can combine that that presents some interesting opportunities um and i guess for you i i guess danielle it would start to look at maybe if the people are buying the drugs and using them whether they are having the effects because you need to look at lifestyle factors because i guess just because somebody's on a drug and then if they also change their diet all the time you don't know it wasn't the yeah, it depends. Again, it depends. It's kind of we call it triangulating evidence. And it's quite a, one of those terms that you put in a grant application because it sounds fancy. So basically, you have all these different types of data and they're and they kind of they're good for certain things and good for others. So the data that comes from Deep UK, they kind of have not so many people, but they're very like they talk about how much exercise do you do? What sort of things do you eat? Like UK Biobank, how much butter do you have on your toast? All those things, they're very intensely kind of, um, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, written down. Um, and they can kind of be used, you can do a model in, you can do like a an analysis in that, and that'll kind of give you one answer, and then you'll do it in another type of data, and that'll kind of give you another answer, and you'll be able to see if both of the answers give you the same kind of conclusion. And that's what we do, so yeah. We haven't got much time left, but there is a reminder that we uh, are taking questions. So whether, if anybody's got any, you can post them in the uh, in the boxes. Martin, before we finish up, I did want to ask, I can imagine it must be quite different because there must be some research that you finish up and then you take one look at that and go, nobody's going to buy that, that's too expensive. Is, is that, do you, do you find some of your work a bit frustrating in that respect? Because you can just see, do you try, do you, do you go away and say, look, can we make this work? <laughs> um, well, not for us. I mean, I think, I guess, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a citizen, a taxpayer, and, uh, I, you know, I, I view what we do from that possession. Oh, yeah. I think the, the key for me, and I think it's, it's the theme coming through the, the whole chatathon, I think, is that the people that are, you know, joining you today, Adam, 
you know, are very enthusiastic about their work and they want their work to go in there and to help to kind of stir into the mix as a society we're trying to find a way to you know find a cure find a preventive mechanism find a suitable care response and so on for people with dementia um, and and more is better I'm a believer that more is better and hopefully people will use the information uh, and the research findings. I answer so, too. Thank you uh, very much. One more thing for me, Adam. Says thank you, thank you enormously, Adam, for doing this, and I hope you can keep going for another whatever it is, five and a half hours. So. It's not too bad. It's, it's, honestly, I think the amazing thing is, is all the research I've talked to, and you guys as well, have, have made this really easy because it's it's easy to you know the time has flown by, because uh, I think the passion that. Uh, comes through from everybody I've spoken to in so much as they really do care. This isn't just a job to anybody I've spoken to. This is something that they really care about and they do want to make the lives of uh, people living with dementia better and to try and deal with this disease. And it, it really does come through uh, in everybody's in everybody's talks. Thank you very much, Martin and Danielle. Thank you very Thank much. You. Good luck continuing to, to <laughs> make your cases and, and finding new treatments. Thank you, Thanks, Danielle. thanks Adam. Thanks, Martin. Thanks.